Hey, this is Greg Knapp. Welcome to the podcast. You know how you sometimes feel stuck? Like you're drifting through life, going through the motions? You know you were created for something more, that an average life just isn't enough for you. Then you're in the right place. Find your purpose. Live your passion. Let's go. Hey, how you doing? Man, I'm glad you're here. I love the fact that there are people who want to make themselves better, right? I mean, you just want to be a lifelong learner and you know there's something out there great for you and you want to get everything that you can out of this life that we have. Love it. So I was thinking the other day about something that happened to my daughter. And I I just think it happens to so many of us. You know, Faith was saying to me, my oldest daughter, that one group of friends is upset that she wants to get in this other group of friends. And so each group of friends is trying to make fun of the other group of friends. And you're like, really? How old are we now? I mean, she's in college. But you think about it, and it doesn't just happen to teenagers, middle schoolers, high schoolers, college. It happens in all of our life, doesn't it? Where you got these competing groups or you've got uh, a feeling inside that you want to make everybody happy. Right. If I do this, these people are going to be mad. If I do this, these people are going to be mad. Maybe these people will be happy. And we get all caught up in that. And it really destroys who we are and takes away from what we want to do. And then we end up not doing our best work anyway. What I think the alternative is, the answer to that is super serve your raving fans. I mean, if we're talking about business, that would be super serve your raving fans. If we're just talking about your personal life, I think it's still super serve your raving fans and your raving fans are your best friends, your spouse, your children, your grandchildren, your, your, your immediate family. I hope now some people, immediate family is not your raving fan. <laughs> You're trying to get away from your immediate family. It wasn't Mark Twain said, you know, when family comes to visit, uh, visiting families like fish, they only smell good for about three days. I think I butchered that, but you get the point. All right. So we got to stop trying to please everybody. Because we know, first of all, it's impossible. Yet, we still try to, right? And if we don't, we feel like failures just because some people don't like what we do or what we say or even who we are. So the question is, why do we compromise so much on what we know would be our best work? Uh, on who we know we are and what we really want to do just so we can try to please a few more people. It's a great question, isn't it? And, and don't we all do it at times? Some of us, well, you know, unless you're just a total jerk, you don't do it at all. <laughs> you don't care about anybody else. I think there's there's got to be some kind of wiggle room in the middle, doesn't there? I mean, have you caught yourself walking on eggshells? Just trying to make sure you don't say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. Well, who determines what the wrong thing is? The people that you're giving the power over your life. That's something I used to say to my daughters when they would get really upset because somebody was mean to them or hurt their feelings. I guess now we would call it bullying them. My child's been bullied. You know, maybe you just need to teach your child to toughen up. But what I would tell my kids is, listen, I know that person made you feel bad. And and I'm sorry that person made you feel bad. And you can have a little pity party for yourself, you know, 10, 20, 30 seconds, okay? Go ahead, have that pity party. But now here's my question for you. That happened a couple hours ago, and you're still talking about it. Do you want to give that person that you don't even like, that person that's made you feel bad today, do you want to give them the power over you to make you feel bad 
the rest of the day? Do you want to give those people the power to ruin your entire day and maybe more? I guess really the question, do you want to be a victim? Why do we give the power to people to do that? And I'm not saying it's easy just to shut that off, but you've got to reframe it that way in your head. This person, I don't care about this person. Why am I letting them impact my life? It's kind of like if if you wrote a book and you gave it to the person whose opinion you value the most and they told you it sucks, that would really hurt. But if you wrote a book and you gave it to somebody you don't know and you don't care about who barely reads and they said it sucked, who cares? Right? So why are we giving power to people we really shouldn't even care about? Why are we so worried about what everybody thinks? And then here's the last part of it that really gets me. Think about this. Have you ever noticed that even if 99% of the people you serve like what you do, you focus on the 1% who don't, right? I mean, you could give a speech, write an article, do something at work, do something wherever, and 99 people come up and tell you they really loved it. Great job. I loved it. Good stuff. I'm going to use it. The one person goes up and tells you, you know, your shirt's wrinkled. It distracted me during the entire presentation. I just don't think you're a very good presenter. And you're going to think about that the rest of the day. Or, you know, I don't I don't even know why we hired you. Uh, I don't think what you're doing has value. Everybody else tells you it's great. That one person, boom, your day is ruined. You know, I've, I've got a great quote from Aesop. If you try to please all, you please none. I want to give you a free gift just for listening to the podcast. It's my book, Go. So just go to gregorybnapp.com slash go free. The link is in the show notes too. You know, see, I, I think the reason we do it though, the reason we're trying so hard to do this, I think it's because we want to be liked. We were raised to be polite. And we don't want to offend anybody. That's the big deal. Oh, we don't want to offend anybody. But what, wait, hold on a second, though. Aren't people offending you? Now, I'm not telling you to go around and try to offend people. But I also don't think we need to walk on eggshells trying not to. I think we need to be ourselves. And if other people are offended by something that doesn't offend everybody else, then maybe it's them and not you. Right? See, being polite doesn't mean you have to stop speaking truth. As long as you're doing it in a respectful way. You know, you should be able to speak truth. You should be able to give your opinion. You should be able to display who you are. You should be able to be your authentic self and not worry that somebody might get mad. I'm telling you, man, I used to struggle on this big time. And I, if I don't work on it, it still it still gets me. I, I, I literally have to work on this a lot. And especially when I give presentations. Okay, let's go back to that. When, when I give a presentation or a seminar... You know, like everybody else, I want to keep the audience engaged. I want to keep them entertained. Uh, I want them in a, in a high state where they can pick up my ideas easily and use them, right? Where they actually take away something from the talk and they get the outcome that the meeting planner wanted when they asked me to come speak. And, and the action steps that I give them, they actually go out and do, right? So in order to do that, they've got to be engaged. So I keep my eye out. As I'm talking, I'm looking at the audience. I'm trying to gauge the reaction, right? And... When I see the people smiling, nodding, sitting up a little straighter, maybe taking notes, reacting to what I'm saying, responding to my questions, I'm like, dude, I am crushing it. 
and I'm starting to feel good and I get more enthusiasm, kind of like I am right now. I can just feel it, man. I'm kind of in that state of, man, this is great. This is why I do this. People are responding. I'm helping people. And then I see the dude looking at his phone. And then I see the guy in the back that got up and left the room. And now my mind starts racing the other way, right? I got this circular reasoning going in a spiral downward. Greg, you're blowing it. People are bored. They're checking their email. That person left. That person thinks you're so bad he got up and left. What do you think he's doing? Why did you think you were ever good enough to be a speaker? You should give up. I mean, that's some good self-talk, right? It can trickle down that spiral that quickly for me. And so when I'm doing that, if I'm up on stage and I'm doing that, or when I was doing my radio show, if I started doing that, if I had a producer that that wasn't engaged, I was like, oh, no, maybe my producer isn't listening. And, and I would start really going down, and I'd have to pump myself back up because otherwise I'm in trouble. I mean, <laughs> I'm killing my energy with my own thoughts. I've got to pump myself back up the other way. I've got, I've got to self-talk again. You know, here's the thing. You don't know what's going on with the other person. You're telling yourself stories. But you've got to be able to stop that self-talk. See, even if I got a great response at the end of the talk, and people came up, hey, Greg, I really like that talk. Um, you know, uh, I really like this part of it, or this part of it really, really spoke to me. Hey, I'm going to try that uh, takeaway you gave us tomorrow. You would think, okay, awesome, good responses, good responses. My brain's still thinking about the dude that got up and left. My brain's still thinking about the guy that I saw on his phone. And, and I have to fight it. Do you, are, do you ever have that? So here's the thing for me. Worrying about pleasing everyone everyone in the room, not just a majority, but everyone in the room, it made me question everything I was doing. And it was hurting my ability, uh, my ability to be the great speaker I want to be and decreasing the value of the speech I was doing that I was hired to do. So you, you got to stop it. Got to stop it. When I was talking about this with a friend, he says, hey, Greg, listen, listen, listen. No matter where you speak, no matter how great a speaker you are, and he was being kind. You're never going to reach everyone. You're never going to reach everyone. He said it just like that. He's that kind of guy. So you have to make peace with it. And if you connect with 80% of the audience and help them get the outcome that they're looking for, then you have done your job, dude. He's right. You're never going to get everybody. 80% is awesome. Heck, if you got 50%, it's probably pretty good. Because, you know, a lot of the people that are at these talks... They, don't, they, they didn't even know that you were coming or, or they, they were forced to get there by their employer. They didn't even sign up for it unless you're one of those where people pay for it. And those are, those are a lot easier to, to handle. But you understand my point, right? And then here's the other thing I realized. That if I tried to please everybody, then I have to change my style. I have to change my personality. I can't be me. And if you're not authentic in what you do, whatever, it doesn't have to be on stage or on the radio, whatever you do, if you're not authentic with your family, if you're not authentic at work, if you're not authentic with your friends, if you're not authentic in a job interview, if you're not authentic in anything you do, people know. You can fool some people some of the time, but most people know. And even though some of the people, they eventually figure it out. And then you look like a total idiot. So you've got to be authentic. So I would have to change all that. Maybe I'd even have to change my message because... My message doesn't please everyone. So at the end, I'd end up with a watered-down, vanilla, lukewarm thing that nobody would really like anyway. So why not do what I love to do? That's what I figured out. Why not just do what I love to do, be myself, my personality, my style, and then I'll please my ideal people. 
my ideal audience, my raving fans. In a world as big as our world, you don't have to please everybody. You just have to have some raving fans. I love that quote from Jeff Bowen. I'd rather be nine people's favorite thing than a hundred people's ninth favorite thing. Dude, I love that. Absolutely. Go for being their favorite thing. That's where the gold is in every way you can define that. That is where the gold is. So then I also had this epiphany at one of my events when I was speaking. And again, during, during my, my keynote, there's this guy near the front and he's got this kind of sitting bee face, right? And, and he's got his arms crossed every once in a while. He's sitting there with his chest and he's picking up his phone. He's looking at it. I thought he's texting. He's checking emails. I'm like, dude's in the front. I mean, if you're going to be that guy, don't you at least sit in the back? So I thought the guy hated my talk. I literally averted my gaze from him the rest of the talk. I, I, I would just turn my back to him. I'd, I'd go to a different part of the stage. I'd look in different areas because it was killing me. And I had to get him out of my head. He was freaking me out. So here's the thing. When it was over, when I'm done talking and people are talking to me afterwards, he's one of the guy in line to talk to me. I mean, I could see him on the corner of my eye and I'm like, oh man, here we go. Because you know, <laughs> do you ever have the people that actually come up to you and tell you they don't like you? Normally they only do it on social media. But some people will actually do it in person. I actually respect them, especially if they do it in a constructive way. But so the guy comes up to me. He tells me how much he enjoyed it. I kid you not. I cannot make this up. He tells me how like how much he liked it. And I, I, I was just kind of smiling at him, trying to figure out, am I getting punked? Is Ashton Kutcher going to jump out? Dude, that's such an old reference. He doesn't have that show anymore. Sorry, that was the last one I could think of. So I didn't say candid camera. Oh, Grandpa Nap's coming out. I was really thinking that I was I was getting punked. And he goes, yeah, I took notes on my phone. So, bing, 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 bing. I was like, okay, wait a second. He wasn't checking his email and texting. He was actually taking notes on his phone. Wow. He said he couldn't wait to try out some of my ideas in his business. And my brain's just going, Argh. wait, what? That guy liked my talk? So here was my epiphany. Maybe I should stop trying to read people's minds. Maybe I should just do the best presentation I can do. Because when I'm up on stage, that's all I can do. It's kind of like when I did the radio show. That's all I can do is the best show I can do. And when I do my coaching, that's the best I can do right then is all you can do. No matter what you do, whatever kind of job you have, when you're not at work, when you're, when you're doing other things, you just have to be in that moment do the best you can do in that moment, not try to read other people's minds on how they're reacting to it, learn from whether you did a great job or not, and make it better the next time. And that's really all we can do. That was my epiphany. Greg, that, that's not such a great epiphany. Some would call that common sense. All right, some would, some wouldn't. I call it an epiphany, okay? So really, that's what I try to do now. Ever since that day, that's what I try to do. Now, as I mentioned, I have to fight this because... People who don't like my stuff and tell me still hurts. I'm not going to, but I try to take my own advice like I do with my, my daughters. And I'm like, am I going to let that one person ruin my day? Am I going to let that one person slow me down from the people that I'm actually helping? So I focus on the people who do like my stuff and I keep finding better ways to serve them. I like what Aristotle said about all this. He said, listen, well, he didn't say, listen, I'm saying, listen, he said, quote, there's only one way to avoid criticism. Do nothing 
say nothing, and be nothing. End quote. Do you really have to put the quotes around there if you said Aristotle said it? I don't know. I just, I started with one, so I had to finish it with the other. I won't do that again, all right? So it's time to stop trying to please everybody. That's what we started with, right? It's time to stop pleasing everybody. Time to try something different. Figure out who you care the most about. Who shares your values? uh, Who who are your ideal people? Who do you want to help the most? And then give them everything. I mean, give them your best. So the focus is on getting loyal customers, people who will go out there and evangelize for you. They love what you do so much instead of just aiming for the lowest common denominator. You know, there's so many people out there that will tell you, oh, you got to broaden your reach. You've got to go for everybody. You've got to, you've got to water this down a little bit. Oh yeah. That's a little too, you got to, you got to shave off these rough edges that you have. Those rough edges are what people grab onto and hold onto, man. You want some of those rough edges because that's going to draw to you the people who actually love what you do. So quit aiming for the lowest common denominator because they're going to drop you in a heartbeat anyway. I want raving fans, not just satisfied customers. How about you? I like what Eleanor Roosevelt said about it. She said, you know, you wouldn't worry so much about what others think of you if you realized how seldom they do. <laughs> I've always liked that. I remember when I was in middle school and you know, you would like, you'd have the pep rally. And one time I got to the pep rally late and like everybody's in the gymnasium, like the whole school's in the gymnasium. And then I had to walk across the floor in front of everybody. And all of a sudden I was thinking, how do I walk? What do, do I walk funny? Do I, am I walking too fast? Am I walking too slow? Should I put my hands in my pockets? Should I, are people laughing at me? Nobody even cared. Everybody's talking to each other, waiting for the pep rally to, talk, to start. Nobody was looking at me, but you think the world is looking at you, you know? So I, I, I love that. That's, that's a great quote. Here's the thing. Raving fans are what we want because these are people who feel like they're part of your family. These are people who tell everybody else about you. They're people who will stick with you. They're people who will buy what you're selling because they love you, what you stand for. You share, they share your values and they want to be a part of what you do. And so you just keep bringing them deeper and deeper and deeper into your stuff. Even when it's not on sale, the first time you offer it, they want it and they don't want to go anywhere else for what you're doing. It sure makes it a lot easier to enjoy what you're doing. It also leads to a great business model because these people keep coming back. And then you get these extra bonuses. You get to love what you do. And that leads to you doing your best work. And then here's here's the super duper bonus. Sounds corny and cheesy. I like corny and cheesy. When you're serving people you really love, doing what you love, people who share your values, putting out everything you can to serve them, that's the moment your work becomes art. That's the moment your work becomes play. That's the moment your work becomes joy. That's the moment that your work is special. So I got a question for you. I'd love for you to comment on Twitter, Facebook. How do you decide who you please? Greg, I think that's whom you please. All right, thank you. My mother was an English teacher. How has narrowing your focus helped you? Okay. And also... uh, you know, like I said, hit me up on Twitter and Facebook. I really want to know what you think about that and what's worked for you. Cause I'm still struggling with it and I need help. We know you need help. I, 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 yes, I do need help. I will admit that. Second part of the podcast today, the author interview. So under new management, it's 
Subtitle is How Leading Organizations Are Upending Business as Usual by David Burkus. And here's the thing. How would you love to work for a company that lets you take as much vacation as you want, bans internal email, dude, right there, right there, I'm working for you, does away with the annual performance review, because we all love that, and actually doesn't just say it, but actually does it, puts the employee welfare first. <laughs> Man, if you ran a company like that, you probably wouldn't have much trouble getting employees. You can get the book on Amazon.com, of course. And he is a business school professor, but also he's a speaker. He's a writer. He's an associate professor of management at Oral Roberts University. And he's worked with all kinds of companies from everything from a startup to Fortune 500 joining us today. David, how are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, very, very glad to have you. I, I love some of the stuff you get into here because it turns on its head most of the management techniques that we've grown up under if we work in a company and so many of them that kind of uh, chafe after a while. Uh, Let me start with the email one, because when I go out and I talk to people about uh, one of the things I do is I go out and speak like you do too, Dave, and I talk about how to do less and achieve more. And and some of that is getting rid of your email. And I say, hey, how about this? How about just check your email twice a day? Tell everybody that's what you're going to do. Put it in your signature. And then you don't do this all day long. And people look at me like I have three heads and they freak out and, and I get all this pushback. Well, you're going way past that. You say ban email to make your company more productive. How, yeah. how do you do it? How do you just totally ban it? So, I mean, honestly, you, your strategy is, is awesome. And there's actually, I don't know if you know this, there's a ton of research that shows from a stress level and a reduction in stress level that limiting yourself to certain times a day, let's say twice a day or three times a day at set points, can have the same effect of like guided meditation on reducing stress levels. Right? Cool, so I love that. Your, yeah. your, your suggestion is, is perfect, but really at a, at a company-wide level, what a lot of leaders are seeing is that this is causing a lot of stress. You know, e- email is great because it's cheap and it's asynchronous. We can send it a lot and we can send it whenever we want. And that's also the problem. We send it a lot and we send it whenever we want. And as a result, we're disrupting people from being able to actually do the deep work that creates value. So a number of companies, my favorite is is Atos, based out of France. They're a tech sector company that basically decided this isn't a good tool anymore. We're going to get a different tool for managing internal communication, which they did have one electronic tool. But then they also, you know, did this incredible thing that, you know, I had never thought of. They had people stand up and walk down the hallway and go have a face-to-face conversation with someone. You know why I'm laughing at that is because so many times, even here in the radio business, I've seen these email chains go back and forth that I'm kind of included in. And, and, and I have literally gotten up, gone into the room and said, hey, you need to come with me and let's go talk to this person and actually fix what's going wrong in about 30 seconds instead of 10 more emails where we're getting mad at each other because we can't understand the nuances and what we're really trying to say. Right. No, that's a huge problem. I mean, there's there's so much loss to communication when we strip it of the nonverbal visual cues like gestures and facial expressions and even the tonal stuff in your, you know, your tone of voice. We strip all of that out, and so it takes more text to communicate the same amount of stuff. So, no, you're exactly right. A lot of times a, a 10-page email could really be a five-minute long conversation if the right people were in the room. Yeah, and a lot more, uh, a lot more fun and a, and a lot more engaging and, and, a, and going a long way to building a better relationship than you have with these emails at some point. So what you're saying is internally you ban the email for this company, but obviously you still have to be able to talk with customers and people outside of your business, but maybe that's when you only do it twice a day kind of thing. 
Yeah. So, I mean, obviously it'd be great if we could train our customers how best to interact with us, but, you know, we've, we've got to do what they want to do, especially when they want to give us money, right? So that's yeah. a much harder thing to, uh, to get a handle on. But internally, and even if you can't do it company-wide, but you could do it with your team that you say, hey, you know what, let's collectively, let's all decide to commit to a couple times a day or only during certain hours. Uh, whatever you can do, either at the whole company-wide level or even just at the level of your team, sure. will have Espe- a huge effect on stress. Especially, David, if you're like sitting right next to the person in the cubicle next to you and you're still sending emails back and forth, and you're like, what? Oh. <laughs> what? Oh, yeah. No, totally. I mean, and, and you know, even being a university professor, we're totally not exempt from this, right? This is something that we have this long hallway that all of us are all officed at and our doors are always open and that I'm still copied on the, you know, the system-wide email to everybody that could have we could have just yelled at each other down the hallway you know? right exactly uh, david burkus is the author under new management is the name of the book let's get to another one i love this idea of the customer is not always right we're raised with the customer's always right well we know sometimes the customer's wrong sometimes the customer's a jerk and and you got to know how to handle that too and and how sometimes getting rid of the bad customer makes your company better how do you handle all that yeah, so I mean I have I have no problem with the statement that the customer is always right. I have a problem with how it's used, right? Most of the time it's used when a manager, somebody who's not on the front line is actually going to apologize for their frontline employee's performance. That may or may not have been, you know, malintended. It may have actually been the employee doing the best job they can to serve the customer need. And because the manager has some other authority, some other access to resources, uh, they can actually make it right. But they're going to throw that person under the bus in order mm. to try and make the customer happy. That's not a recipe for long-term customer loyalty. It turns out that if we want to build sort of sustainable raving fans, what we actually need to do is look at what, what I like to call the value zone, the place where value is actually created in the organization. And that's any role or any activity that touches the customer. And put that first in our org chart and make sure we give them the resources and abilities and knowledge and skill that they need in order for that value zone employee to put customers first. So it's not forgetting the customer. It's, it's saying to the employees, I've got your back so you can get your customers back. And that also means being brave enough to say, you know what, there are some types of customers that are not right for us. They're not right for our business model. And in order to let you better serve the customers that are right in our target market, we're okay with the idea that not everybody walks away happy. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I love all that. And, and especially the last part, uh, because I do think that sometimes it's better for the customer even to go somewhere else. And, and everybody's going to be better off without that customer, including you. Uh, so, and I love how you said don't throw your people under the bus because that does get done a ton. Uh, let's get into this one. Uh, I've seen this being done at a couple different companies. And to be honest with you, David, I don't quite understand how it's going to work. Unlimited vacation time where you just tell your your, your employees, all right, you can have as much vacation as you want. And, and not because I think everybody's going to take too much. Because I think everybody's going to take too little because I think everybody's going to be afraid to take it because do they really mean it? Uh, If I take three weeks, am I looked down upon now because I used to have two? Uh, How does it really work? Yeah, so and that's a very real fear. On on average, we find that when we look across all of the different companies – they tend to take about as much vacation as they did before. But remember, that's an average. That does mean that some companies are seeing more vacation days taken, some are seeing less taken, which uh, I'm, I'm with you. That actually kind of worries me. The big thing that of, between what determines a successful implementation of this idea and an unsuccessful one actually doesn't have anything to do with vacation days. It has to do with trust. This was the thing I found most interesting. Netflix, the company that really championed and popularized this idea, 
They did it not as some grand scheme to get people to take more or less vacation. They did it because employees were going to their founder and their senior leaders and saying, you know, we're a results-only environment. You, you, you trust us to get our objectives done. You're not tracking what hours of the day we're working in the office. You're not tracking what days of the week we're working. You're just holding us accountable for results. Why are you tracking what days we're not working, what days we're taking vacation? And they didn't have a good answer. So they said, you know what, we, we trust you. Take whatever vacation you need. We're going to keep holding you accountable to your objectives, but we trust that you know how much of a break you need. And I think it's really telling that right after that, the next uh, policy that Netflix sort of disrupted was their expense report policy, and they did another trust-focused policy. They, they changed it to five words, act in Netflix's best interest. In other words, we trust you. Wow, that's awesome. I love how that came to be because I was just talking about this last week, David. You know, uh, the whole March Madness thing. Every time it kicks off, there's this study about how many billions of dollars it costs us in lost productivity. I'm like, I I don't believe it because where I work or where where most people work, where they care about their job, if I'm the manager, I say exactly what Netflix says. I say, listen, guys, by Friday, here's what we need done. I don't really care how you get it done. I don't care if you take time off to watch your favorite team play in the in in March Madness, but by Friday you close the business. This this has to be done. Have a great week. So it still gets done. That you're probably going to work harder, more productively in a shorter amount of time, so that you have the time to watch your favorite team in March Madness. Same thing right. for vacation. Or- or, or the thing that we're not ignoring is, you know, March Madness may not be the reason we lose a ton of productivity. We would have lost that productivity to Solitaire and Minesweeper had my, March <laughs> exactly. Madness not be on, right? These aren't the employees that are, that are intrinsically motivated to do that. The ones that are the performers that are getting stuff done, they're also the ones that know that they could go to their very reasonable boss and say, hey, you know what, University of Oklahoma plays tonight at 6.30, so uh, I was going to cut out early today, but I'll make it up and get the, the work done by Friday. And there's never a problem with that idea. Absolutely. I, I think that's how everybody should manage. Just, hey, here are the things we need every week to get done. How you get it is up to you. Uh, flexible about tele, telecommuting and coming in whenever you want kind of thing. That's the kind of place I want to work, and I think that's where most people want to work. Well, and, you know, one of, one of my friends that I, I was talking about the book idea to a couple of months ago said it best. He said the future is already here. It's just not evenly dispersed. And like you said, this is, that's the kind of company you want to work for. Th- these are the kind of companies that are drawing our most talented contributors. And so you may or may not be ready to switch to these things, but if you don't switch to them soon, your talented people are going to convert to them anyway. So well, that, you might as well be able to keep them in-house. Awesome. That brings my last question to you. Under New Management is the name of the book, How Leading Organizations Are Upending Business as Usual. David Burkus, the author, speaking with me now. You can get it at Amazon.com, of course. Uh, David, in the bookstores too, I'm assuming? Yep, at okay. your favorite retailer, wherever you want to get it. Fantastic. So if if I'm not the business owner, if I'm a business owner listening to you right now, I'm thinking, hey, maybe I'll try some of these things. Great. But if I'm not the business owner, how do I get my boss or my company to even consider trying some of these things? Well, I mean, besides grab a copy of the book and then anonymously leave it under his door, I think really there, there's an opportunity to create what I call these sort of pockets of excellence, right? So just like we were talking about with email, you might not be able to get an email banned in the entire company, but if you could say to your team, hey, let's have a real conversation and put some limits around this, and then down the road we see a boost in productivity because you did that, now you've got a case on which to sell the whole idea to the whole company from. I totally agree. If you can, if you can try a couple of these things and show the kind of productivity gains – and, hey, I'm working better than ever and happier than ever, then maybe your boss is going to say we should give it a go, right? You know, try it on a trial basis on some of these things. Yep. yep. Good stuff. David Burkus is the author, Under New Management, How Leading Organizations Are Upending Business as Usual. All the details up on our Facebook page so you can link right to it. Hey, David, thanks for being with me today. 
Oh, thank you so much for having me. All the best. I want to give you a free gift just for listening to the podcast. It's my book, Go. So just go to gregorybnapp.com slash go free. The link is in the show notes too. I love this one from a quote from Thomas Sowell. He said, people who enjoy meetings should not be in charge of anything. And then from my favorite author, Anonymous, to err as human, to blame it on someone else, shows management potential. On that, we're done. Hey, hit me up on Twitter, Facebook, love comments, questions, and suggestions on who you would like me to podcast or what topic you'd like me to hit. My name is Greg Knapp. Find your purpose. Live your passion.